Open your Bibles or navigate on your device to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, please. I cannot encourage you enough to read along as we're going through our study. I sincerely believe with all my heart that God will speak to you personally from His Word as you read along. John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. The topic, no one had ever seen God until Jesus came as God in human flesh. The title of our message, the first time ever we saw your face. <laughs> Some of you are dated by that, but anyway, let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for this opportunity to meet. You've blessed us in so many ways. I mean, Lord, we... Uh, if we started counting the blessings that we have just right now, right here in this building, Lord, we wouldn't have time to have our Bible study. And so we, we thank you. And now you want to bless us with a sense of your presence as you're here in the church, Lord, manifesting yourself by your spirit. We thank you for your word and pray that it would speak to our hearts in a really powerful way. That when we leave here, we would be more like Jesus than when we came in. Thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agree said, amen. Undercover boss disguises company executives as new entry-level employees to experience what life is like among the rank and file. My favorite undercover boss isn't an episode from the show. There are two Saturday Night Live parodies in which Adam Driver reprises his role as Kylo Ren, grandson of Darth Vader. He disguises himself as Matt on a Starkiller base, and the next time as Randy, an intern on a Star Destroyer. It doesn't go well for his subordinates, as you can imagine. God came to live among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Things did go well for those He dwelt among, Mankind was dead in their sins, Jesus is life. Mankind was lost in the dark, Jesus is light. Uh, translation of verse 16 says, because of all that the Son is, we have been given one blessing after another. I'll organize my comments around two points derived from the text. Number one, in Jesus you behold the glory of God, and number two, in Jesus you are bestowed the grace of God. Let's take a look and talk about the glory of God in verse 14. You gotta love the anti-drug public service campaigns aimed at kids, unless you're a kid that got caught with drugs. But anyway, let's move on. In one of them, my favorite, a guy takes an egg out of the carton. Remember this one? And he says, this is your brain. Points to a hot cast iron skillet on the stovetop and says, this is drugs. Cracks the egg, it begins to sizzle. He lifts the skillet off the burner and says, this is your brain on drugs. Any questions? Very powerful. The opening 18 verses of the Gospel of John make me want to say, this is my brain on doctrine. It's sizzling with profound teaching about God. John wasted no time introducing the doctrine of the Trinity. He told us in the opening verses that a person called the Word was with God at creation and was God the Creator. It is a mind-boggling revelation that God is one and more than one. My mind is still reeling when John states that the Word who was with God and was God became flesh to dwell among human beings. 
Discussing Jesus being fully God and fully human might be trickier than examining the Trinity. If I misspeak and say something confusing, default to this following statement. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ was the eternal God who became a human being. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, came to earth and took human nature upon himself. He did not possess human nature until his virgin birth in the little town of Bethlehem. From then forward, Jesus of Nazareth was fully God and fully human. Jesus is the God-man. He was not half God and half human. These two natures in God the Son, residing in one body, cannot be divided. He did not do some things as God and other things as a human. Everything he did was as the God-man. John announced the word becoming human in one of the most sublime verses in all of the Bible. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God in human flesh overwhelms theologian Wayne Grudem. He writes this, it is the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even than creation. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. If you're an avid reader, you appreciate a well-crafted sentence. There are times reading J.R.R. Tolkien that I pause and have to reread a sentence many times because of the way that it's worded. It takes nothing away from the rest of the inspired Bible to be completely enamored by John 1.14. In every sense, it is one of the great verses of the Bible. Some people take eight to 10 weeks to teach this one verse. Uh, and, and I think they could go longer. Let's take a look at it. And the word became flesh. The word who was with God and who was God took upon himself humanity. Jesus in human flesh differs from undercover boss in that it was not temporary, nor was it meant to be a disguise. Jesus never stopped being God. He will never cease to be human. He is forever both God and man in one person. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. And Jesus didn't come in disguise to fool us. He came to show us the Father. We'll talk about how no man had ever seen God until the Lord came. The word became means he added humanity to his deity. We should note that the virgin birth, another sizzling doctrine, means Jesus possesses a perfect human nature. He was without imputed or inherited sin. Jesus is the only person who qualifies to save us. There can be no other savior apart from the God-man. Dwelt, another carefully chosen word in this masterful sentence. It is the word you would use to say that you pitched a tent or you built a tabernacle. It connects Jesus coming in the flesh to the Old Testament tent the Jews pitched, the tabernacle, which became the pattern for the temple. Since Jesus tabernacled with us, God in human flesh, there is no need for a tabernacle or a temple in the current 
dispensation in which we live. And again, we saw in the book of the Revelation, in eternity there is no temple there either because the Lamb and the Father are its temple and its light. And I mention that to just remind you something we've talked about many times before. Don't get drawn into observing early church uh, traditions or Judaism or any of these things. There's no reason for us to celebrate any of the Jewish feasts, not any of them. Uh, Jesus fulfilled all of them, and we don't need to go back to them. Uh, and the early church, 90% uh, of the time, the early church was wrong. <laughs> it just, you know, I've, they pick and choose these quotes from the early church, and if you get the whole context, uh, you know, it's just weird some of the things they did. But we always have this sense uh, that, that if we're more somber, if we're more liturgical, if we're looking backwards, somehow it's more spiritual. Uh, and, and, you know, and you, it's easy to say, well, we are pretty casual, right? I mean, we're a pretty casual church. And it must be more spiritual to be less casual, right? I mean, that's the uh, normal thing, but that's just not true. Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. All of that old system is done with. The veil is torn in half. You have direct access through me to God the Father. Don't put anything between us anymore. And so be careful. We beheld his glory. I've always found glory a difficult concept to nail down, hard for me to define. I came across this useful description. God's glory is the sum of all his attributes and perfection. It is sometimes displayed as a bright or overpowering light. And so when we see the Lord in his glory, uh, like in the Old Testament, they saw the, the, the Shekinah glory cloud of God, which represented all of his attributes and perfections. John beheld the glory of Jesus on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. In Matthew 17, it says that Jesus was transfigured, and when he was, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And so God, uh, John got a glimpse of what uh, Jesus' glory was like. John beheld Jesus' innumerable signs and wonders, all of which we will read bring glory to God. And John was at the crucifixion. In John 13, 31, Jesus will say of the cross, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. And so those are three ways that John beheld the glory of God. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Now this word begotten tends to throw people. Upon first reading, it sounds like the Father created Jesus. But that can't be true because we already learned earlier in this chapter that the Word was with God and was God. He pre-existed as the eternal God. I've lately been quoting from the International Standard Version of the Bible. Here it is, uh, John 1.14 in the ISV. The word became flesh and lived among us. We gazed on his glory, the kind of glory that belongs to the Father's unique Son, who is full of grace and truth. And so instead of begotten, the better translation is unique. Jesus is the unique, one-of-a-kind Son of God, uh, and not not created by God, but unique in his relationship. This word is used in the book of Hebrews when the writer is describing Abraham and Isaac. It, it, even though Abraham had an older son, Ishmael, it says that Isaac was his only begotten son. In other words, he was the unique son that God had chosen 
to be in relationship to Abraham to receive the promises. And so the only begotten son means he is the unique, one-of-a-kind Jesus. He's full of grace and truth. In John 20, 31, John will tell us that he wrote that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we would have life in his name. Sadly, not everyone will believe. The words grace and truth describe the experience of both groups of people. Those who believe receiving Jesus experience grace. They are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. It's a gift from God. And then they go on being enabled to walk in God's grace. Those who will not believe, those who reject Jesus, experience a hard truth. Jesus puts it this way in John 3, 18. He who believes in me is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It is truth or consequences if you're a non-believer. John beheld Jesus' glory. We behold Jesus' glory. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are told, we all, talking about every Christian, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, the the uh, reference to the veil on the face is a look back at Moses. Uh, you'll remember that Moses, when he met with God, uh, he would come back glowing. He, he just was shining because he was in the presence of the glory of God. But that glow would fade. It was like those, uh, you know, I, I told you when I was a kid, I had a Jesus crucifix that had a glow-in-the-dark Jesus on it. And so I'd keep the light on all day, and then at night it would, you know, if I ever got up in the middle of the night, there was no more glow. And, it, you know, it's like, it's kind of, it's scary for a kid to think that Jesus isn't glowing over you. And, and so, but Moses would come down and he would put a veil over his face so that the people wouldn't see the glow fading and get the wrong impression. Paul, writing this, he says, hey, that's all done with. Now we see the glory of God in Jesus Christ by his spirit, which indwells us, and through his word, and we are growing in glory as we know more about God. And people don't actually see us glowing, uh, hopefully, uh, but you can a lot of times get a hint that somebody's a little bit different. Uh, you've experienced this where you think, hey, I wonder if that person's a Christian. And you can just tell sometimes, uh, you know, by their behavior and, and things they do and don't do and all of that. And so he's saying that we experience the glory of God in a growing way. As we draw nearer to Jesus, his glory then is revealed in us and through us. Now, secondly, the remaining verses, verses 15 through 18, in Jesus you're bestowed the grace of God. You might remember the Metrons. They were a powerful, peace-loving race. They intervened as Captain Kirk pursued the Gorn to retaliate their attack on a Starfleet outpost. How many of you remember William Shatner just went into space? Did you hear about that? Uh, was it Elon Musk? Was it, no, the other guy, Virgin? No, the other guy, who was it? Bezos, oh, Bezos. yeah, the grocery guy. But uh, Whole Foods. Anyway, so and they're calling it to oldly go where no man has gone before because he's like 91 years old. I thought, man, that's great. I'm contacting that guy to help me write titles. Uh, but so anyway, back in the Gorn. Remember the Gorn? Who, who remembers the Gorn episode? 
the Gorn was like a reptilian. I love the old special effects. It was just a guy in a costume, right? Like a Halloween costume. And how they did a spaceship, I don't know, because he moved about this fast. And their hands were reptilian. And the whole time he's just going, until they got the universal translator. And then he started trash talking to Kirk, you know. But anyway, Kirk finally figured out that he had everything he needed to be victorious, all the resources he needed. We have all we need in Jesus Christ and the all we need resource of grace especially. And so verse 15, John bore witness of him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me for he was before me. Jews would have considered John the Baptist superior to Jesus because he was his elder by six months. John dispels that when he says, he who comes after me is preferred before me. In other words, Jesus positionally has a, he has a greater position than John in the scheme of salvation. Then he is quoted saying, for he was before me. Born after John, the only way Jesus could be before John was to have existed before his birth. He was before me is John the Baptist's statement that Jesus pre-existed. We don't know how much John knew, but he was, after all, a prophet, and he would speak the things that God told him to speak. And so John the Apostle, the author of this gospel, goes to great lengths to keep reminding us that Jesus Christ, the man, was the God-man, that he was fully God and fully human. And that's so important because all of the cults, either at the beginning or at some point, take a shot at Jesus, and he is never God in the cults. He is always the first created being, or he's just a human being, but he is not the unique God-man. Verse 16, and of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. Translations of grace for grace include the following. Grace on grace, one blessing after another, one gracious gift after another from his abundance, gift after gift after gift, grace over against grace. What I learned from that is that scholars can't seem to get a handle on exactly what's being said. It's like something you say and don't really know what it means. I try not to do that anymore, you know? I, and so, uh, you know, I, I, oh, grace upon grace. What do you mean by that? Uh, I don't know, but it sounds good. Glory of God. That's why I, 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 you know, I try not to say the word glory. I'm afraid somebody will say, what does that mean? I say, I don't know. It's, I have a hard time with it. Well, first of all, this isn't saving grace. It is grace in abundance after salvation because some of the translations are gift after gift or one blessing after another. And so this is a grace that's available to us after we're saved. And second, this grace abundantly available comes from the fullness of Jesus. J.C. Ryle writes and says, all we who believe in Jesus have received an abundant supply of all that our souls need out of the full store that resides in him for his people. It is from Christ and Christ alone that all our spiritual wants have been supplied, and that would include grace. Let me ask you an important question. Have you been stocking up on toilet paper? Don't laugh. Here's a quote from Fox News. Product shortages are going to be as bad as when the COVID-19 pandemic started, as reported on Fox Business. 
They made this prediction after Costco warned its customers it was having trouble fulfilling toilet paper orders the week of September 20th. The shortages won't stop at toilet paper. And so they are predicting severe uh, shortages. Jesus is always fully stocked in supernatural resources for you, and a primary resource is grace. One of our Lord's unclaimed promises is that during the church age, we will suffer tribulation. If you were to ask Clubber Lang his prediction for the church age, he'd say what he said in Rocky Three: pain. All right, so I don't do a very good Clubber Lang, but... God love Mr. T. Mr. T's a Christian, by the way. Yeah, good guy. To quote Pastor Chuck Smith, grace changes everything. The apostle of grace, Paul, explains how grace changes everything in our sufferings. And just a footnote, I'm talking about specifically grace and suffering. There's, there's other things we could talk about, but we talk about suffering a lot here because there's a lot of suffering. And we need to have a robust theology of suffering so that we don't think it a strange thing when we fall into various trials. So here's Paul's take. I love this personal moment with Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. We don't know what it was, but it's serious. Uh, a thorn, not, not, you know, one of those little rose thorns. I mean, he's talking about a massive thorn that is troubling him. Uh, so whatever his trouble was, was very debilitating. And he said it had something to do with supernatural powers behind it. And concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Grace is needed to meet infirmities, reproaches, needs, persecutions, and distresses. It is needed when you are weak to show that God is strong. Grace is not the healing that you ask for. It isn't the way out of your trouble. It isn't the removal of your trial. It is the resource that allows you to boast about God and take pleasure in the midst of those things. Most likely your house is equipped with the kind of water heater that keeps preheated water in its tank. And it's always why is it always strategically located as far away from your shower as possible? Have you noticed that? I mean, it must be an engineering joke where they say, okay, I've got, every, I've got all the schematics here. Where's the farthest place from the shower that we can put this hot water heater and not get in trouble with the code? And so at my house, old house, my house was built in the 60s. And uh, man, it, you know, I, I have to sometimes feel like I started the night before. Uh, you know, it's not quite that bad, but it's rough in the winter. There are tankless water heaters that promise instant, unlimited hot water. You turn the handle and bam, hot water. Let me ask you this, is grace a resource we must store up in a tank or is it instantly available to us? Well, if we're honest, we tend to live as though it needs to be stored up. We never seem to have enough of it to cope with what's going on. We act like there's a grace shortage we talk about renewing the fire 
as if we need to reheat our tepid tank. And notwithstanding that we need to be revived and that we need to repent and that we need to be rededicated and that it's okay to say, Lord, light a fire in me or, you know, that kind of thing. I'm using this as an illustration. We act like, okay, here's my life. Something just happened, usually something terrible, some suffering. And I wish I had enough grace. But unfortunately, my grace is in the garage and I'm just now turning the handle and I don't know when it's going to get to me as opposed to having a immediate supply of grace. The grace we are talking about comes from the fullness of Jesus. And so it's all there in abundance. And the Bible describes believers by saying you are in Jesus. A few years ago and still continuing, a lot of Christians, hip Christians, uh, they didn't wanna be called Christians anymore, they wanna be called Christ followers. In the Bible, I think we're most often called those that are in Christ because we now have inherited everything that the Father has promised to the Son. And when the Father sees sees us, he sees the Son. And so we're in Christ. Now, if you are in Jesus and he has an unlimited supply of grace, then grace is instantly delivered to you in an inexhaustible supply. After all, it is grace. It can't be earned or merited. And so the idea that you have to wait on grace and do something spiritual to, uh, to uh, have it come into your life means it isn't grace anymore. It's not a gift, it's something you earn. And so what I'm trying to get my head around, and it's so hard, is that I have grace in abundance whenever I need it. And it doesn't matter if I'm mature as a Christian or a brand new Christian, because grace isn't meted out differently to different Christians. It's just grace. And so Paul said, I have this tremendous physical disability. We have no idea what it was, but you know, we don't want it. And he said, it has something to do with Satan. It's a messenger of the devil on special assignment to try and you know, do things. And, and the Lord says to him, don't you understand? I have grace that is over sufficient and over abundant to deal with that, and immediately Paul says, great, then I will boast about my infirmities and I will take pleasure in them. And God says, and I won't remove them necessarily. It's not a bargain. As far as we know, Paul went on having a thorn in his flesh and the messenger of Satan to buffet him. But he understood grace. And what we learn from Paul is that beseeching God is fine, but boasting about God is better. And so there, are, there comes a time when you might actually uh, have prayed enough about something, Paul did, and because God answered him, and his answer was, you have grace. You don't need me to take this away from you because you have grace to overcome it, and that is how you're going to reveal my glory. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Mentioning Moses in the law seems odd to us, but that's because we're not Jews. John had introduced the thought that Jesus fulfilled the symbolism of the tabernacle. So what about the law? And uh, was that going to be still in effect? Here's a quote. By Moses was given the law, the moral law, full of high and holy demands of stern threatenings against disobedience, and the ceremonial law, full of burdensome sacrifices, ordinances, and ceremonies, which never healed the worshiper's conscience, and at best were only shadows of good things to come. By Jesus, on the other hand, came grace and truth, 
grace by the full manifestation of God's plan of salvation and the offer of complete pardon to every soul that believes on Jesus and truth by the unveiled exhibition of Jesus himself as the true sacrifice, the true priest, and the true atonement for sin. You almost don't notice that John uses the name Jesus for the very first time in his gospel. He called Jesus the word for the very last time in verse 14. And so he's taken us from heaven to earth and he's going to show us this ministry of this unique son of God. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. Wait a minute. We know that Moses saw God, right? Well, Moses saw God, but in Exodus 33, we read God speaking, you cannot see my face. No man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here's a place by me. You shall stand on the rock, and so it shall be while my glory passes by. I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. In other words, this is an anthropomorphic way of saying, you really can't see me in my full glory and live. And so I'm going to just give you a glimpse of my glory. And so it's true. No one has ever, had ever seen God. Others, like Moses' disciple, Joshua, we say, well, Joshua saw the Lord. He had a conversation with him there before Jericho. That was what we call a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus in a different form. Again, it wasn't the glory of God because God says no one can see me and live. Albert Barnes writes, this passage is not meant to deny that men had witnessed manifestations of God. It is meant that no one has seen the essence of God or has fully known God. So the problem becomes, how can we know God and fellowship with him if he is unapproachable? The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. The contemporary English version reads, no one has ever seen God. The only son who is truly God and is closest to the father has shown us what God is like. Every believer is, and I quote, uniquely called and placed in our own sphere of influence. We talk about this a lot here too, how that we go back out into what we call the world, whether it's our work or our family or wherever we are, we see ourselves as called to that place, as sent to that place, as sown to that place. If, if you're not entirely out of the will of God, if you're not Jonah going the wrong way on a boat, uh, then you're in the place that God wants you to be. Sure, you took the job, they transferred you, uh, that's where your next detachment is, those kinds of things. But God is in charge of those things and you could see yourself as where God wants you to be in order to reveal the glory of God in and through your life. You're an undercover operative, but like Jesus, it isn't to disguise Christianity, it is to expose people to it. That's our uh, wonderful responsibility and pleasure. And so let others behold God's glory by being led by the indwelling spirit and let others marvel at the grace bestowed upon you, first in saving you, then in its abundance in and through your life.